Welcome to One More Time, a wind band podcast. I'm Stephen Cohn, and today we're going to talk about band buildings and what makes them unique. As we start all of our episodes, we have Scott Schwartz from the Sousa Archives with today's From the Archive, which, while it's well known that Sousa and his band performed at the Harding Band Building at the University of Illinois, they also performed at a lot of other places, which Scott is going to tell us about. Hi, this is Daniel with another episode of the Sousa Archives with Scott Schwartz. Scott, how are you doing? I'm doing great, and how about you, Daniel? I'm good. So what do you want me to talk about today? So we've already heard a little bit of information about the Harding Band Building from Barry, but I want to know, is there anything else related to Sousa and the interesting places he's played that oh, you could yeah. tell us? Yeah, I mean... Uh, you know, we think of, um, you know, the Harding Band Building as this state-of-the-art facility that was designed in the 50s for bands, the first of its type. And we just assume that America's March King always played in great spaces, the state-of-the-art theaters. And um, I just want to let everybody know, no, <laughs> um, there were lots of places that were elegant sometimes, and other places that, well, probably closer to being questionable. But nevertheless, the Sousa Band played at them and gave fine concerts. The Sousa Band gets its start in 1892, and um, they play at the Foot Guard Armory in Hartford, Connecticut on November 16, 1892, and do an evening concert. And, of course, you think of foot guard armory, you know, you ask yourself, is that a place where people exercise their feet? And, of course, the answer isn't quite like that, but um, the military, the, the army. And, um, you know, Mr. Souza had a, a, an interesting concert. This is a very early program. I mean, he, he starts out with a Rossini overture and then jumps right into Grieg's Pierre Gint Suite and follows it up with a series of trombone and euphonium um, solos, and then shows off his descriptive piece, Sheridan's Ride, which he wrote when he was still director of the Marine Band. Then he does some dance tunes that he titles, um, basically an old dance tune, arabesque. Never heard of a dance tune that you would dance to a fiddle called arabesque, but what the (laughs) heck. has uh, Marcella Lind do the mad scene from Lucia de Lamour from Donizetti, and finishes up with Evening Star from Tannhäuser, and then Susan ends his concert with a humoresque, which he titles Goodbye, which was a kind of an exit piece for the band where each section of the ensemble would play a bit and then walk off stage and then would leave Mr. Souza by himself. And of course, all of this taking place at an armory. Now, other places that the band played at that were a little unusual besides armories, he played in Trenton, New Jersey at the Interstate Fairgrounds on June 29, 1894. He played at the First Tabernacle Congregational Church in Jersey City, New Jersey on December 15, 1894. And that was an evening concert, and my favorite of those early performances was a concert given at the Schlitz Park 
in Milwaukee, Wisconsin on May 26, 1895. And I find it intriguing for the Schlitz parts gig, he did a matinee and evening, so the beer must have been pretty good. <laughs> um, other unusual places, you know, he, the very first really weird place to play was at the St. Andrew's Ice Rink in St. John, Canada. He played there two nights, June 4th and 5th of 1895, and then the following year, he plays at the Orange Athletic Club. He plays at a gymnasium in Orange, New Jersey. And that's in 1896. And then follows up with several other performances at ice rinks, of course. Most of the ice rinks are not being used um, at the time. We have the old skate ring in Tulare, California. That's 1896. And then he plays at what is described as a curling rink in Nova Scotia in 1897. And for all folks who don't know what curling is, well, just imagine that the Sousa Band is sitting on a block of ice that the week before somebody's healing stones down this ice stretch and others sweeping in competition. I have no doubt Probably the Sousa band, while a bit chilled, probably blew the stones right away. A curling rink. So, did the Sousa band always play in really weird places? Well, not always, but you know, let's say that they weren't spectacular places, and a lot of things that that happened weren't necessarily in their control. Um, in concert in White Plains, New York. Right as the concert is starting, an electrical storm passes over the concert and knocks out the power to the building. And so for the first half hour of the concert, the band played from memory, not being able to see Mr. Souza nor their music. Wow. Not ideal. Um, Another situation that occurred um, several years later in Tucson, Arizona, um, the band was ready to play when they realized that there was no electricity because the electricians had gone on strike. And so the first half of the concert was given with candles sitting on the music stands, all right? And um, they managed to pull off the concert in good order, but I can't imagine, you know, doing a concert by candlelight, um, knowing full well if the music catches on fire, you know, you, you'd really have a hot time in the <laughs> old town. Um, another um, exotic place, well, I, I call it exotic because it's a beautiful tabernacle. Um, it's the Mormon tabernacle. Um, in 1926, um, the choir loft was full of boys in the balcony. And as boys of the junior high age are known to be a little rascally, um, they figured the programs were better used to make paper airplanes. So during Mr. Souza's concert at the Tabernacle, the young boys were periodically flying paper airplanes of the programs off the balcony down to the audience below. Exotic places 
places you wouldn't expect the concerts to have such unusual circumstances. And nevertheless, the band played on. So the Sousa Band has really played at a wide variety of places. What's probably the most interesting place you think they've played at? I tell you, one place that you would not normally expect to find a band playing would be a saloon on a sailing boat. Really? Yep. Um, When the band did its first European tour in 1900, they sailed on the USMS St. Paul, sailing over to Germany, and on April 30th, gave a concert, a full concert, in the St. Paul Saloon on this boat. So I can imagine the band having a good time knowing full well that, well, you know, we can liven up the music a bit with a little beer to help accompany the song. I suspect Mr. Souza kept a tight watch on the players until at least after the concert. Other exotic places, they played at the Palm Garden in Germany, Leipzig, Germany, um, between June 10th and 13th of 1900. They also played in a zoological garden, a zoo in Germany, on July 2nd. Years later, they play, on their world tour, they play at Wanderer's Gymnasium in Johannesburg, South Africa. So you give a full concert in what is a gymnasium as opposed to a concert hall. These are the kinds of places that are just a little exotic from my point of view. And those are just, you know, just a couple of the many, many that the band did. The band in order to be financially stable, had to do concerts, just had to play consistently. And, um, you know, he had to make sure butts were in seats. Um, And sometimes the band would come to a particular town or location, and it would draw hundreds, if not thousands of people to a town's theater that would only be meant to seat two or three hundred. So clearly it's not going to work if you don't have enough seats so you find bigger places to play. For this edition of Two Minute Rehearsal Techniques, we have Dr. Michael Weiss-Holmes from the Chicago College of Performing Arts. Dr. Weiss-Holmes earned his doctorate from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. As an educator, I find it to be very helpful for uh, young saxophonists and even saxophonists at the collegiate level where I currently teach to be working on fundamental exercises that include uh, mouthpiece pitches. Uh, The two most common instruments within the saxophone family being the alto and the tenor. Those two mouthpiece pitches, if you actually have the student remove the mouthpiece with the reed and ligature still on and practice on the alto of getting an A on the mouthpiece, A440, and then it would be a G for the tenor saxophone. And those two pitches on the mouthpiece can really help not only with intonation and learning how we voice correctly on the instrument, but then secondarily, it also does help open their sound out and get a more beautiful, rich sound out of the saxophone. I think we all know the saxophone to be idiomatically and a fairly simple instrument to understand, be it that you put a finger down and the sound goes down a note, and then you pick a finger up and it goes up. That part of it is fairly easy to understand for most people, but what is extraordinarily difficult is to get the voicing of the instrument correctly so that we can get the most beautiful sound possible 
Um, I think we all probably have heard saxophonists in the fifth grade that can play really well technically, but then by the time you get them in high school, you're like, what is happening here? So I think um, mouthpiece pitches can be very helpful for both intonation and sound concept. The second thing that I would also recommend with that is taking a look at equipment. I personally perform on exclusively summer Paris instruments for all of my saxophones, and I utilize um, all Van Doren products for my mouthpieces and ligatures and reeds. I try to go to the pros that do those things. That doesn't mean that those are the only two uh, manufacturers that I would recommend, but those are the two that I find give me the best uh, potential for getting the best sound and intonation of response that I'm looking for on the instrument. So to wrap it up, I would definitely take into consideration working with, uh, working with your saxophonists on their mouthpieces um, and then taking a look to make sure that they have the correct equipment, keeping in mind that we always have to keep them in good regulation with a great repair person. So good luck to you. And now for our story. Band buildings are special, each one unique, and they all come with a different story. Some are older, some are newer, some are still in the process of being built. Today, we're going to tell you four stories from four band directors across the country, and they're also going to share some tips about what you should be looking for in a band building. Enjoy! It was a long process. It was kind of, you know, there's no handbook on how to do these kind of things. So you just kind of have to uh, hit a few walls and go around those walls, and hopefully there's a door here or there that you can walk through. Barry Hauser, and I serve as the Associate Director of Bands and Director of the Marching Illini at the University of Illinois. Uh, my name is Dave Woodley. Uh, I'm a professor of music in the Jacobs School of Music at Indiana University. Uh, this is my uh, 32nd year of college teaching and my 26th at IU. Uh, my name is Randall Coleman. I'm the Associate Director of Bands at the University of Alabama. My name is Tim Anderson. I'm the director of the marching band, kind of the athletic bands here at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. I've been in this position since uh, summer of 2011, so this is my eighth year at UMass. The Harding Band Building is one of the country's first comprehensive band buildings in the country. It was dedicated in 1958, actually happened on March 7th, 1958, by our second director of bands, Mark Hinesley, uh, in honor of the first director of bands, Albert Austin Harding, who served as the first director of bands at the University of Illinois and was actually the first director of bands anywhere in the country with the full professorship behind his name. So the Harding Band Building was developed primarily because of the Bands continued to grow at the University of Illinois from their initial start. There were some initial uh, events that took place in 1867 when Illinois Industrial University opened, but the first documented uh, performance took place in 1868, so 150 years ago. Um, and a lot of that was due to the work alongside military science, or our ROTC programs here. And so um, as the concert band developed and as the military bands developed, they realized that they needed to have a space for rehearsal, for equipment, for offices. And at that time, a great deal of recording equipment, because at the time, uh, Illinois was leading the way in terms of 
some of the, the band music production. Uh, so when we look at the current Harding Band building, it continues to serve as rehearsal space, equipment space, uh, one of the largest repositories of wind band music anywhere in the world. Uh, so it's, it's our true home to the historic Illinois bands. Uh, we've, we've had a good tradition, and this band building that we have now uh, came about probably in the last 15 years from this inception to where we ended up today, which is with a 20,000 square foot band building. Well, uh, the, the Marching Hundred has never had a rehearsal facility that we called our own. We always uh, had to go to a field house or uh, other places that were never ours. We were sort of just renting them. And over the last 15 years, through some uh, work of our School of Music, through uh, some help from a bunch of donors, uh, we were able to uh, get this building approved by the university and then built. And the interesting thing for us is that it's just strictly a marching band building. The Department of Bands uh, doesn't uh, house itself in our new building, it's just the marching band. In about 2008, uh, my colleague and I started investigating various band facilities because we had none at the University of Alabama. We had our own dedicated practice field, but that was basically it. There were no storage buildings, uh, no restrooms, uh, so we were really interested in upgrading our, our outdoor facility. And then of course, we had no space large enough for the band to fit in. Uh, if we had rain or inclement weather, uh, we basically had to cancel rehearsal. So we started taking a tour of the various uh, play, uh, schools in the SEC that already had existing facilities and trying to get a, a kind of an idea of what we might want and need. And we moved forward from there. Yeah, we were housed in what's called the Old Chapel which was constructed in the late 19th century uh, for religious purposes, but it never served as that. It became a library. And then when the campus expanded around the time of the Second World War, the, um, it became, it was no longer suited for a library. And it, it, somehow it ended up in the music department's hands. And then when the music department got their own building in the, uh, in the mid-70s, the Fine Arts Center, the marching band was sort of like the last thing that was left in the old chapel the marching band and our second jazz band, which was called the Chapel Jazz, a name that it still holds. But at some time, right around the same time that the band got the Southern Trophy in the late 90s, the uh, the old chapel lost its occupancy permit. So the marching band had to vacate that. And Mr. Parks has, uh, campaigned ceaselessly, unceasingly for a new home for the marching band. And that was this, this building that we're in now, the Georgian Parks Minuteman Marching Band Building. But one of the things that came up with that was, unfortunately, as some of you may know, he never got the chance to see the building finished. He saw it, he broke the ground on it. He, uh, the band had a big thing, and I think it was Homecoming 2009 for the breaking the ground on it, but it was never, he was in, in the fall of 2010, the UMass played football at the University of Michigan, and the band stopped at uh, Cuyahoga Falls High School in Ohio en route to Ann Arbor. And right after the performance, Mr. Parks was struck by a heart attack and the band bravely continued on with the trip and performed at Michigan, but the sad way he never was able to see the building that has his name finished on that. I think the unique aspect of the Harding Band building is much of it when you walk through the halls today 
resemble exactly what it looks like when it was dedicated in 1958. Now, an interesting fact with this, this is actually the second Harding Band Building. The first band building was constructed of wood um, on this location. There was some debate between the Board of Trustees uh, whether they should relocate the wood band building while this new band building was being constructed. And due to the expenses that were involved, they decided against it and knocked down the wood structure and basically put the band into a variety of different units housed in military science to continue their rehearsals, equipment, and things like that. Um, when you look at initial cost of, of the band building, um, you know, it's an interesting figure. Right now, it probably doesn't seem like a lot to our listeners out there, but obviously at this time, when you think back to the 1950s, uh, the cost of the overall band building was $846,000. Uh, which right now we'd look at that and like, man, that's a steal. Um, I think something that would probably be pretty interesting to our listeners as well is that the original drawing, there were actually three original drawings for the van building, and they obviously chose one. Uh, that original drawing that they went with actually had a third story to it. Uh, due to lack of funding, because most of it was raised through you know, a variety of entities for those donations, they decided um, to go ahead and eliminate the third level just because of finances. So we've ended up with what is currently here. So the Sousa Archives is housed in the band building, and I think that's an interesting facet to what we offer here and another unique offering that uh, other band buildings may not have uh, in terms of the history that's involved. Um, obviously, there's a great deal of history of every band director that served here. Uh, they house many of the papers, the communications that took place. Um, from, again, A.A. Harding being here all the way up to present day. Uh, John Philip Sousa and A.A. Harding were great friends, and uh, John Philip Sousa made multiple appearances here on the University of Illinois campus with his great Sousa band, and due to that relationship that they had, uh, we have 75% of Sousa's belongings that are here. Um, everything from many of his manuscripts to his marches, of his marches, to a variety of his batons. Um, we have Herbert L. Clark's cornet, some of his music as well. So you look at the historic Harding Band building is, yes, a rehearsal space, uh, currently working, but there's also, in a way, kind of the historical element of a walking museum with all the exhibits that we have up on the second floor. Well, at, at the beginning stages, uh, we had wanted, obviously, a large enough rehearsal room that the whole band could fit inside. Uh, we also wanted to have two separate rehearsal rooms, one for our drum line, so they had a place to call home, and one for our Red Steppers uh, dance team. Uh, they had never had a rehearsal facility before, they were always stuck somewhere with the cheerleaders or stuck somewhere with the track and field athletes, but now they have their own uh, rehearsal room. So those were the three things we wanted, a big room for the whole band, separate room for the drum line, separate room for the Red Steppers. And then on top of that, we of course wanted the necessary storage space for uniforms and instruments and library and things like that. And, and we pretty much got what we wanted. We were very fortunate that what we originally asked for 
is pretty much exactly what we got, so we're pretty lucky. The, the best thing is, for example, on a, a football Saturday, we have a place where we can change clothes and we can eat lunch and we can do all of this stuff that's in our building and we control it. It used to be we were just part of the big field house in athletics and so people could come and go and uh, it was just kind of a big traffic jam in there but now we have our own building and so we can headquarter the whole day there except for going to the game which has made it a lot easier for game day. Well, we were thinking, uh, you know, with a, a band our size, we have about 400 students in our band, and that that's pretty set from year to year. Um, so we were looking at a, a rehearsal space that was large enough to hold that many musicians, but yet also be acoustically treated so that we could actually accomplish something if we were to have a rehearsal in those rooms, which is another layer that uh, that's of course very expensive, and you want to make sure that you know you have the space that you can actually use. Um, so we, you know, we toured these facilities and saw rooms that we felt were large enough uh, that we needed to go for. Um, and kind of ironically, uh, I had a former student uh, from when I taught high school that was that is a very successful architect in Atlanta, and I kind of pulled some favors and I, you know, asked, hey, can you just draw us up a sketch so when we go to these people at the university and say, hey, we need a we need a space for the million dollar band, they can have a visual as well as us just speaking about it. So, you know, uh, he he did a great job in drawing us up a, a mock facility, and uh, we were able to move from there. It, it wasn't easy uh, because, you know, you're asking for something that's going to be quite expensive. But the way we went about it was uh, we felt like approaching it from an academic standpoint would be a little bit easier. Um, and we just used the, you know, painted the picture of this is an academic class that the students are getting credit for that right now the class has to be canceled if it's raining. And there's hardly another class on campus that has to do that. And also the fact that we didn't have restroom facilities at our field uh, was another issue that right now we use a fast food restaurant that's across the street for our restroom. <laughs> so uh, that was, of course, something that kind of everybody understood that, of course, we needed restroom facilities. And this was a class that, that 400 students take for credit. So uh, we kind of approached it that way. And, you know, it, it wasn't a, you know, 100% sale right off the bat, but eventually with enough persistence, we were we were able to convince everybody that, hey, we really didn't need this. And then the next thing was, you know, raising the money for it. <laughs> well, we, um, like I said, we started talking about this probably, I'm, I'm thinking around 2009 probably, and uh, we got our new practice field uh, and we started using it in the fall of 2015. And basically what they did, they took our existing field, which had just natural grass, natural turf on it, and we replaced it with sprint turf. And we got a new uh, teaching tower out on the field, and they just did a lot of renovations around uh, our, our existing field. Um, then the second part of the project was the actual building, which as I, uh, is actually a wing on the pre-existing Moody Music Building here on campus. Um, and it, it's about a five minute walk from our practice field. So it's actually very close. And actually the student parking lot is in between the building and the practice field. So it, it's actually quite convenient. Um, so we, uh, we actually moved into our uh, band 
facility in 2016. So we did the field in 15 and, and now our building in 2016. And I, incidentally, right now, they are still working on a new parking deck next to our practice field that's going to include, finally, restrooms that'll be at our practice field and uh, storage facilities for our sousaphones and color guard and uh, auxiliaries and just, you know, basically a couple storage rooms out there, which will be great. And that's supposed to be finished by next fall. What we have now as a wing on the music building, there's a total of about 24,000 square feet. And the main centerpiece of that is, is a rehearsal room that's large enough for the MDB to use. And that main rehearsal hall is about 7,500 square feet. Um, and it's uh, basically a two-story structure that uh, a, a lot of money was spent on the acoustic treatments of the room. And the band actually sounds really good in that room. And uh, it's, it's kind of surprising. It was surprising to us in a good way. And we also have a smaller concert band rehearsal room that's about 2,500 square feet. Uh, and then, of course, our, the, the band department offices are in the new wing. Uh, we also have locker rooms in the building for the students. We have a male locker room and a female locker room uh, where the students can get dressed on game days, uh, uniform storage, and then we also ha uh, have a laundry facility in the room because our uniforms are uh, the washable kind. So now we are able to wash our uniforms here in the building and don't have to outsource that anymore. Mr. Parks did just a tremendous job of, of, of raising the funds. There was a deal that the bank could come with so much funds, the university would match, and you know, Mr. Parks just rallied everyone on that. So he saw the building, like the framing going up, and saw the plans and i think the building as far as i know pretty much followed exactly the plans that he saw coming on that one because we moved in in july of 2011 so just you know maybe nine months after professor parks passed and the building was operational right then one of the the neat things he did with that is is the huge rehearsal room we call it the big room because it's you know it's a big room but it's laid out flat but the tile work is laid out so that you can do eight to five grid on it i mean it's too small of a room to lay down a field to do actual you know actual drill but you can do marching fundamentals and the like on that and which we've done quite a bit when we do auditions for section leaders and that kind of thing we use that indoors these students can demonstrate their eight to five ability right there and the, so that's pretty cool what he did there and then the ceilings are high enough and built in with mirrors on the wall so that also we can clear the floor and use it for the color guard and the, and the baton twirler so they have a cable you know, rehearse the routines, be able to check right there in the mirrors. I'm, I'm going to go with what I know because I wasn't at UMass at the time, but from what I understand and having seen the video of when they broke the ground on it, it was, he was told as they were raising the funds to do it, that they were going to name the building after him. And he had, so he wasn't named in memoriam. He had been here, I think, well over 30 years at that point, the Sudler Trophy, all this national renown, so it was well-deserved. And I know he was very, a uh, very unsteady about that, you know, because that's quite a, you know, a thing to have a building named after you and you're still there. But that was insisted on. So that was the plan. So no, the building wasn't named after him in memoriam after he passed.
I think, you know, when you're looking at constructing a new facility, I think there's so many resources that are out there in this current day and age that you need to do your homework, number one. And what do I mean by that? You need to get out there, you need to visit a variety of schools that have current structures and talk about the pros and cons. And you'll find out from each of those entities, and I'm sure for many of our colleagues who have recently constructed a facility, I'm sure they're elated about that space, but there's usually some missing elements that once you get settled in, boy, I wish we would have done this differently. So I think collecting that data along the way will help provide a, a better facility for your use along the way. Yeah, I think it's, it's quite different uh, from public school to the university level uh, when facilities are, are uh, talked about. For, for us here, it was just, uh, you know, kind of working your way up the food chain. And we finally... Uh, got the ear of uh, our wonderful provost at that time, who is a huge supporter of the band program. And, you know, she was like, yes, this needs to happen. So our project was actually funded 100% by the university as a whole. So we didn't have to do any fundraising uh, at, for that. Uh, and she was just our kind of our guardian angel. So that, that worked out well for us. Uh, in that respect. I think in public schools, it's quite different, um, uh, you know, from school system to, to school system. But I think it's all about, uh, you know, considering the band as a part of the academic curriculum and making that argument in that vein rather than just saying we need the, the band room because we have a big marching band. Uh, but rather it's a class that the students take for credit and it's, you know, it's a, a needed piece of equipment. I think the biggest things to consider are, uh, you know, what are all the things that you can do of having a building? So like for us, example, it was we originally designed primarily the marching band, but it's allowed us to do so many more things. You know, we have in the summers, I conduct the town of Amherst Community Band. And we, that was a group that didn't really have a home. and We've been able to find a home for them. And we used to only do a, a concert band, kind of like, you know, the, uh, the university bands in Illinois. We only used to do a concert band spring semester. But now we're able to do concert band spring and fall semester because we have the space here. And so it just little things like that. Our honor band festival, we've been able to expand because we have we have extra space. So I think I think ways of thinking, what are more than you can do? It might have been thought of just as a home for the marching band, but it's really allowed us to do so much more than that by just by having this extra facility. I think a lot of, you need to look at what the physical space is used for on a daily basis. And so specifically when we look here at the Harding Band Building, this building was not constructed for 375 people that we have in the Marching Illini. Um, at the time it was constructed for slightly under 200. Um, you know, our uniform space, there's one entry point and that also serves as the exit. So, you know, you can't send that many people through through those spaces. When you get into the actual rehearsal space itself, I think you need to really look at a lot of the acoustics. You know, is it, you talk with con uh, contractors and a lot of them are initially just gonna give you an eight foot ceiling. That's horrible for any type of band and it's gonna be way too loud. So, you know, making sure that you look at those considerations along the way and looking at the space of what the acoustics are gonna be in that facility, very key. Locker space, storage space, you can never have enough. Uh, especially with the activity that you have with a marching band being housed in a building along with the concert bands you know there's a lot of instruments cases things like that so that's a very important element not to overlook well I guess the first thing I would I would say is you have to dream big uh, if you ask for a space that's too small 
then you're probably going to get a space that's too small. Um, now, obviously, like the Harding Band building, uh, if you could do it over again, you'd probably make that main rehearsal hall just a little bit bigger. I mean, I have, I've been there to visit Barry and back when Tom Caneva was there, Gary Smith, and you see the band, you know, pigeonholed in there and it, you can barely get enough room in there for people to move. So, you know, you, you do what you can, but I would say dream big would be my first advice. And second of all, it would be to get other people uh, across the country, maybe in your region, and ask them questions about, hey, if you guys had a dream building, what would you have in it? And then you could take the best answers from all of those people and see which ones you like. And then that could be part of what you would request for a room of your own or for a building of your own. Well, the one thing that I would, I would encourage others to look at, of course, would be the acoustical treatments of the room. You want to be able to let the band play but you don't want to have it so loud that you just can't function in there. So I would say acoustical treatments would be uh, number one. Number two would be some computer equipment that you can play recordings for the band. You can show them maybe a projector with other kinds of music or whatever. So I'd want to have a fully functional AV unit in that room. Obviously enough chairs and stands to go around and enough room in the room to move around so people aren't just pigeonholed just like the marching line eye in the band room there, which is, you know, you, you do what you have and it's great to have that building, but I think if you could do it again, you'd add about 6,000 more square feet in that big room. And the acoustical treatments might have been perfect for 1952, you know, but they're not now anymore. There are lots of things like that, but we all do as band directors, we, we make do with what we have sometimes. The big thing that's our responsibility of our staff is to make sure our students don't take this for granted because prior to 2011, for like almost 10 years, the band didn't have a home. They would just meet in different spots on campus. So having our own building, I, I don't want our students to ever take that for granted because it really is, is quite a treat. But I think it's something that our, like our Greek organizations like Kappa Kappa Psi, Tau Beta Sigma, Phi Mu Alpha, Sigma Alpha Yoda, they like to do events there. And I think it's good because it provides those groups, this is kind of a sense of ownership, you, that you get to be a part of this facility. This is a place that you can call home. And I, I think even more than the rehearsal abilities, which is great and all that, giving the band kind of a sense of belonging, I think that's really, really important. And I think that's something that Mr. Parks, that was part of his vision because that's what the band had. I, I talked to alumni from up to the 90s and they talk about how intensely they identified with the old chapel. They called themselves the Chapel Rats because they were always there. And for our current band to be able to have that same sense of belonging, a place on campus that's theirs, I think that's really invaluable. The band did a, a tremendous job of that night of continuing on and then all throughout the rest of the season. And to this day, you know, his, his legacy is felt every single day. And that's, you know, I think that's on us because, you know, and this is probably not a fair comparison because there's so many years apart. But, you know, I, I just wanted to, I know that, at, you know, in Illinois when I was there, Mr. Keene and people like that, Peter Griffin, you know, were very insistent on you had to know who A.A. Harding was. It wasn't just the Harding band. You had to know who Albert Austin Harding was. And I think that's kind of on us. We have to make sure our students don't know that George Parks is the name on the building, but that there is a meaning behind that name.
Thanks for joining us on today's episode. If you made it this far, please rate the podcast on iTunes or like the post on the website. Please share the podcast if you enjoyed it uh, via Facebook and other social media with your friends. And your help will go a long way in getting more people to listen and enjoy this podcast. Please consider following us on iTunes to make sure you don't miss anything if you enjoyed today's show. And if you want to stay current with Illinois bands between episodes, follow us on Facebook or join us on Instagram at Illinois underscore bands and find us on Twitter at Illinois Bands. You can always check out our website for more information and all the podcasts at www.bands.illinois.edu. The executive producers of today's show are Dr. Anthony Messina and Stephen Cohn, and the staff of the podcast includes producers Daniel Dresser and Emmett O'Brien. Of course, none of this would be possible without the Illinois Bands faculty, Stephen Peterson, Director of Bands, Linda Morehouse, Senior Associate Director of Bands, Beth Peterson, Associate Director of Bands, and Barry Hauser, Associate Director of Bands and Director of Athletic Bands. Illinois Bands is part of the School of Music at the University of Illinois and the College of Fine and Applied Arts. We would like to thank Dr. Weiss Holmes and Scott Schwartz for their contributions to this episode, and we hope you'll join us next time on One More Time.